You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us on this hot Kansas morning. I am not in a hot place. I am in our basement, which is cool. I don't mean aesthetically. I just mean temperature-wise. It's pretty nice down here. Been a busy morning already, running around with uh, kids, getting them off to camps. My older twins went to drama camp, which is a little bit like me going to short man camp. Uh, it's just who I am. And then Scout, our six-year-old, went to a baking camp. Um, I would have paid extra to just sit and listen to what's going to happen this morning at baking camp. Because he's got some high expectations. And I, I anticipate if they are not met, he will explain um, his frustration, I think. But he's been watching baking shows, of course. So he's pretty geared up to this thing. And I just cannot imagine that it's actually going to meet what is in his mind of baking camp or what baking camp should be. He was asking me this morning, Dad, do you think maybe it would be better to sell cakes in the fall? And I said, why? He goes, well, in the summer, they're going to melt. In the winter, they're going to freeze. Seems like fall and spring are the best times for me to sell cakes. So already he's thinking onward of what he's going to do with, with what he's going to learn today at baking camp. I cannot wait to go pick him up at noon. It's just going to be awesome. Yesterday, we moved the bridge. You know you can move a bridge? Well, you can for one day. We moved the bridge from our normal meetings place to another place a good distance away for one day because the original meeting place out at the Culture House was not available. And so in doing all that, um, great service, a lot of fun, but our audio didn't quite uh, sound the way I wanted it to sound. And so rather than tap into some fuzzy audio, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to back up and um, just kind of teach it podcast style so that you can actually hear it without having to deal with, with all the static and whatnot. So if you haven't poured your coffee, now would be a really good time. If you haven't found your Bible, you might want to grab that on the way to get the coffee. Grab those two things and get right back here. We're going to dive into Second Peter right after this. All right, all right, all right. Let's hope that you have your Bible, have your coffee, and we're going to dive into week three of our series on Second Peter. Now, what we've done is kind of a 40,000-foot view of Second Peter, which he wrote probably in the final months of his life, certainly within the last year or two. Simon Peter, whose name means the reed and the rock, writes with passion and understanding that there will be no third Peter, Okay. His life is not to be continued. Now, none of the apostles were particularly hesitant to write with clarity. They were bold. But imagine the boldness that comes on a man who heard Jesus prophesy his martyrdom and is living in a city where martyrs are being made every day. Peter is at once probably dealing with some element of fear in the physical realm. He's human. But he writes like a man who fully expects the gospel and what he is about to die for, to explode across the earth. Understanding that his end is coming soon, he is giving his strength to something that will not end. P. 
Peter knew to be true what the poet Dino Christianopoulos would not write until the 1970s. They tried to bury us, but they did not know that we were seeds. So 2 Peter is three chapters written by a man with the words of Jesus echoing in his ears when Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat fall to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And Peter, knowing that his life would produce much fruit, even if he never ever saw it in this lifetime, Peter picked up his pen and he began to write. Second Peter is a product of that sort of environment. Now, in the last two weeks, we talked about part one, where the steps to true love were laid out and uh, how to multiply peace and joy. We talked about part two last week, the importance of a true prophetic word when describing Jesus. And in part three, this man who is living under a death sentence writes sentences of hope over those who are true to Jesus. Now, I've called this the 40,000-foot view because it is the view you see from an airplane. You can see a lot, and you can piece things together, but there are details you do not see at the level that we're teaching this. You look down, you see the road, you see the farm, you don't see the cat on the farm chasing the mouse. I say that to say that after these three weeks, you do not know Second Peter. But you've got the lay of the land, and I would encourage you to take what you've learned and do a second or third or fourth flyover just reading it slowly with the framework that I've given you. That's my approach to this final chapter, which really seems to stand on its own. A lot has been said and thought about our past, the sins of our past, forgiveness for our past, wrestling with regret, how to break free of the past. With the past behind him, Peter writes the final chapter of his life, and he writes it with a bend towards hope. There's an old Italian proverb that says, hope is the last thing lost. That doesn't mean that everyone is tenacious. That only means that one's hope is lost. So is everything else. Peter has lost the likelihood of a long life. He's lost the idea that he might fade into the periphery. He's going out with a bang, but he's going out with hope. Now, I'm not going to teach through the entire chapter. We're just going to skip along the surface today. But there's a four-part framework that I want you to consider as we look at this passage. You can take these as four big points that we can see from the airplane. You can swoop down on your own and see the details, starting in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In this first section, Peter makes it really clear. God has a plan. Never underestimate the role of a plan in calming a fearful heart. My oldest son, Jackson, is married to a Brazilian named Mari. We adore our daughter in love. If you've met her, you understand. She's hard not to love. And when my son fell for her, he fell hard and fast. And we were right behind him. I mean, we all fell for her. We adore her. In 2020, Jackson and Maddie went to Brazil for ministry and to see her family. They went to the Send, which is a one-day missions event. 
that filled five massive soccer stadiums in Brazil to pray that the Lord would send laborers into the harvest. It made such an impact on the people of Brazil that when they did a similar event in Orlando later that year, and they filled a 60,000-person stadium, about 20% were Brazilians who had come from Brazil to pray for the United States. We used to send missionaries to Brazil. Now they send them here. On that trip, they spent a significant amount of time with Jackson's in-laws. And they decided that they would take a few days and go to the beach. So they left with the plan of arriving at the beach around 8 o'clock in the evening. Now, it's important to note that while Mari speaks perfect, unaccented English, her parents only know a little bit of English. And Jackson's Portuguese vocabulary is somewhere around zero. He might be able to say, is that an apple tree? Which is only helpful once in a while. There's no apple tree, what do you even say? Jackson said as they were pulling into the crowded beach town, he figured out through Mahdi interpreting for him that while they had beach clothes and suntan oil and towels, they had no reservations. They had no place to stay. Jackson described it later as a very Brazilian moment. And he began to panic like many of us might. What are we going to do? Where are we going to sleep tonight? He told me, I honestly thought at one point we might have to sleep in the car. Jackson likes a plan. He likes logistics. He always has. He could not imagine they hadn't thought this thing through. And to make things worse or better, he wasn't sure, within 20 minutes of arriving in this little beach town, his father-in-law had negotiated a good price on a beachside rental. Jackson was home a week later, and he was telling me about this. He was still in shock. He said, Dad, I'm glad it worked out, but it only reinforces the idea that you do not need a plan of any kind. Now, planning may not be your thing, but I'll tell you this. A plan gives people confidence. A plan can be counted on. A plan silences objections that haven't even been raised yet. A plan can be made when you control all the pieces on the chessboard. And according to Second Peter, God is not rolling into the future without reservations. God has a plan. He initiated that plan at creation. That he would be in fellowship and in communion with man. And in spite of the fall of Adam, he didn't change the plan. In spite of all we may have done, God has not changed his plan. It is still for us to know oneness with God. Plan might have gotten more expensive, may have cost him his son's life, but he has not wavered to the right or to the left. And Peter writes about a common thread of thoughts here, words from the Lord down through thousands of years. He says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What God the Father the Old Testament prophets, and the New Testament apostles all attested to was this idea. There is coming a day when God will fulfill his plan. The prophets wrote about it. Joel wrote multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. That wasn't a day when people would be choosing or rejecting God. That had already been done. The valley of decision was God making the decisions on his day. He has a plan. John wrote in 1448, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words 
has a judge. And the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. God is not rolling into the beach town not knowing what is going on or what he is going to do next. He fully has a plan, and he looks to reveal it to those who love him. And that plan includes dealing with evil on the earth. One of the best parts of the millennial generation has been their focus on the idea of justice, of making wrong things right. Let me tell you, if you love justice, if you really love justice, you will love the day of the Lord because God has a plan. And that plan includes dealing with injustice. That should give us confidence to risk love and our lives. Peter continues, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, when he talks about the second segment of this book or this chapter. He said, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter starts out chapter 3 by saying, God has a plan. And he goes on to say the second part is that scoffers will come. They'll question it. They'll question God. They'll display a cynical heart disguised as an intellectual argument. And they'll say, if he's coming, where's he at? Their primary argument is this. Nothing ever changes. They say things like, My grandma always said Jesus was coming back soon, and now grandma's in the ground, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. And grandma wasn't alone. People more influential than grandma have said that Jesus was coming back. A Baptist pastor in the early 1800s, William Miller, gathered a group who followed him closely and became the Millerites. Now, just a side note here. If the name of the church becomes the pastor's name followed by ites, that's a warning sign. Okay, go to another church. If the name of the church is the pastor's name followed by ites, there's a reason we didn't name the bridge the Bolenderites. Okay, it's just not good. But the Millerites followed the teachings of William Miller. And in 1818, William Miller prophesied that the Lord would return on the 10th day of the 10th month of 1844. The 10th day of the 10th month of 1844 came and went. And to this day, those who still follow William Miller refer to October 10th, 1844 as the Great Disappointment. Some of you are going, wait, wait, wait. There are people that still follow William Miller? Actually, yes. Seventh-day Adventist Church still publishes a lot of William Miller's writings. They are the extended inheritance of the Millerites. Now, you may listen to that and go, well, of course, early 1800s, people were superstitious and they believed crazy things, and it's not the kind of thing that would have happened in our lifetime. Well, you don't have to go that far back. In 1987, an American pastor wrote a book titled 88 Reasons, Why the rapture will be in 1988. Kelsey was working in a Christian bookstore in those days, and they could not keep them in stock. Now, if you've not been paying close attention, uh, 
Jesus did not come back in 1988. Oddly, you can still get the book on Amazon for real. Only has three stars, and I think for obvious reasons, but all of these predictions that have not come to pass have been a breeding ground for scoffers who say nothing has ever changed. People talk about Jesus' return, and here we are. And Peter says that scoffers will actually increase following their sinful nature and saying that things never, ever change. Phrases with the words never, all, and every are rarely true. I would say never true, but that would just prove my point. Peter goes on to point out that they overlook two very important things in their scoffing. I mean, they're little things, really. Easy to overlook if you have no sense of history. They're not small events. Peter singles out that scoffers will forget these two things. Creation and the flood of Noah. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Many of you have heard the phrase, exvangelicals. Exvangelicals are people who were once proponents of evangelicalism, a traditional view of Jesus and his atonement and his role in our life. And with social media, many of them are very vocal about the deconstruction, or I would say even the destruction of their faith. And I won't even go into who or give them any more uh, platform than they already have. But uh, many prominent people, many musicians. And it's interesting that within this moment of people calling themselves ex-evangelicals, leaving the church, and in many ways making a mockery out of what they believed and how they made a living not long ago, two of the big things that they say caused them to struggle with their faith are the existence of injustice and the biblical account of creation. Those are their hang-up points. Why is there evil in the world? And don't tell me that Genesis is real. In 2 Peter, he is talking about these scoffers when he tells us that God has a plan to deal with injustice and that scoffers will come and will struggle with things like creation and the flood. Why? Well, scoffers say that nothing's ever changed, but you can't say that nothing has ever changed when the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters and the voice of God spoke the world into existence. That's a big deal. You can say, I wasn't there. You can say, I didn't do it. But you can't say nothing has changed. If you do, you're saying that your own little world and your limited understanding is the bounds of the universe that you live in. People who live in a world like that have flat earth stickers on their car. And you cannot say that the Lord does not judge in righteousness when he flooded the earth, saving only Noah, his wife, and his sons and their families. It's, it's almost ironic that when he judged the earth at that time, God describes man this way. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If the people of Noah's day 
would have seen it coming. They might have adjusted their behavior, but they were blinded by their own sin and their own indulgence and their own scoffing. Which presses Jesus to tell us in Matthew 24, 37 to 39, For as were in the days of Noah, so will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. There is nothing new under the sun. And the wave of scoffers that we see being highlighted in our own culture were described in Second Peter. He said, that it would come, and that Jesus said that in the days of his coming would be like in the days of Noah, with people living life unto themselves as if he had no plan at all. Peter tells us God has a plan. Scoffers will come. The third portion of this chapter, he tells us, but God is kind, and God keeps the time clock. For years, Zion, my third son, played soccer. He, uh, he and a buddy played for a couple of years in the YMCA League and uh, kind of got invited to leave. Got invited to leave because by the time they were 10 or 11, they were scoring eight goals a game, and they just decided that was not what the YMCA was all about. But that's what he was all about. So we entered the strange and wild and woolly world of being a competitive soccer family. It's almost a full-time job. Got a lot of practices. As a dad, you're responsible for the lawn chairs. Uh, there's a, the tenuous relationship you have to maintain with whoever is the referee. And I learned one of the peculiarities about soccer. In any other game, a clock is displayed, and the game is over when the clock runs out. Or the game is over when you've played nine innings. It's not the way it is with soccer. With soccer, when the clock runs out, the ref then announces stoppage time. This is the number of minutes that the ref has determined that you have wasted during the game. And he adds time based on that number, which he pulls out of his head. He will say three minutes of stoppage time, four minutes of stoppage time. I've seen as many as nine minutes of stoppage time. And then the game starts again to play out those minutes of stoppage time, which are not put on the clock. So you don't know, is it? Seven minutes left? Is it two minutes left? And even if you start a stopwatch when he blows his whistle and starts the stoppage time, that doesn't mean anything because he doesn't need to stop exactly when he said he was going to stop. The game's over when the ref decides the game's over. Now, sometimes if you're ahead and you're tired, stoppage time is your worst enemy. But sometimes stoppage time is your best friend. But either way, the ref keeps the clock. In the grand timeline of history, God keeps the clock. But God is kind, and his motivation is not for the game to be fair, but for you to survive the game. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Do you understand what it means for a musician to sample music? It's when they take bits of a song and then they put it in their own song. Now, to someone with a strong sense of copyright law, it seems wrong, but to an artist, it's a compliment. Until that song starts making a lot of money and then it's a lawsuit. But here in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is sampling David. He's sampling Psalm 90, verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 90 say, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. In other words, you see men die and you call them back to life. And then it goes on to say, For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So man's understanding has always been that God is aware of time. He created time, but he is not ruled by time. He doesn't have reminders going off on his phone. He probably doesn't even wear a watch. He made time, and he blesses some with long life, so he understands the value of it in our lives. He's just not going to be ruled by it. What is his motivation, though? If time doesn't matter to God, why is he taking so much time in returning? If a day to God is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, let's light this firecracker. For all of those shaking their fist at God, demanding, why don't you do something? It is because he is patient. He is patient towards us. Hebrews 2 talks about his desire to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And if his delaying his return means more will come, he is patient and his timing is perfect. He is kind and he keeps the clock. So Peter tells us God has a plan. Scoffers will come. God in his kindness keeps the clock. And the fourth portion that we want to talk about this morning is this. We decide how we wait. Knowing that God is kind, and that God is keeping the clock, and that there are scoffers all around us, yet God has a plan to bring justice to the earth, how do we wait? Peter lays out two values to display while waiting. Second Peter 3, 13 and 14. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. He says, be diligent in blamelessness and live in peace. From the days of the early church through its present age, it's like we are all living in the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Are you familiar with the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? It's a study done by psychologists, probably funded by your tax dollars, regarding the understanding of delayed gratification, the willingness to wait for something better than you have right now. And the best way to study this involves children and snacks. A four-year-old child is put in a room with a snack, and the moderator tells them, I'm going to leave. I will be gone for a little while, not very long. When I come back, I will have more snacks, better snacks for you. Or while I'm gone, you can eat the modest snack in front of you. But if you eat the snack in front of you, it means you do not get the snacks I'm bringing. Now they videotaped these. And the mental gymnastics that these kids go through to try and wait for better snacks or to convince themselves it's okay to take a lesser reward borders on hilarious. 
Four-year-olds, when left alone, tend to speak their thoughts out loud. Now, some of you are saying I'm 40 years old and I do that now, but that's a completely different thing. Sometimes the child that seems the most resolved to wait will suddenly grab the snack moments before the psychologist returns. They started out strong, but they began to doubt, and the snack was right there, and two minutes later they realized, oh, I should have waited for the psychologist to return. Waiting is a dangerous state for humanity. We tend to waver over time in our resolve and in our comfort. You would think that as God reveals himself to us over our lifetime, that we would grow stronger in our resolve, but sometimes the opposite would happen. Sometimes, because we're human, the longer we wait, the harder it gets. Peter tells us, be diligent. Don't waver. Wait patiently, with great resolve, because God controls the clock, and when the clock runs out, be it by his return or even by our passing, he wants us to be found having lived to the standards of purity that he showed us during our lifetime. The message of holiness is not just for teenagers, friends. Amish culture has this thing called rumspringa. It's a season when their young people are released from the expectations of the faith, and they run off to live in debauchery for a season and decide later if they want to return to the Amish life. Sounds crazy to us, especially for those of us with teenagers. No rumspringa for you. Rumspringa canceled this year. In the evangelical and charismatic churches, though, it's almost like there was a rumspringa for empty nesters. People who raise their kids in church, the kids get out the door, and suddenly mom and dad feel the pressure is off, and they open to the door behavior and attitudes they would have never allowed in the house when the kids were there. If you're going to wander from the Lord, even for a little while, friends, late in life is a bad time to do it. God is keeping the clock, but it's game over at some point, and you don't know how much stoppage time you're living in. Let me encourage you to diligence in holiness before the Lord at every station in your life. He is worth it in your teen years. He's worth it in those early years of marriage and when you are running and gunning and raising kids. He is worth it in your empty nest years. Peter encourages us, wait in diligence. Peter closes out the final chapter of this book. A man sentenced to die, but with a belief that the movement of Jesus would never die. And he tells them at the end of the chapter, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The whole chapter tells us that God has a plan for your life to deal with injustice, for every challenge that you will meet. God has a plan. Tells us don't scoff just because you haven't seen it yet. Your breadth of experience is not all that there is to life. Peter tells us that God is keeping the time clock out of kindness and affection for us. And then he encourages us to wait in faithfulness to the Lord until the fullness of time. And with that message, Peter lays down his pen. We do not hear another thing from him on this side of glory. And he is martyred for what he believes and for what he told us to live for. Friends, these are not the words of a salesman. These are the words 
of a true believer. I really, really enjoyed teaching through Second Peter and the sobriety that Peter brings to these three short chapters. If you missed part one and part two, go back previous episodes of the podcast. They're there. I hope you have a great day. It's heading towards time to go pick up Scout from camp, which possibly should be a podcast all of its own. Take care, friends. I'll talk to you next time on the third cup of coffee.